death sentence for this week. Uh, we got some news coming. You probably know the news already, but we're here to recap it. And we're on the line on Discord, the gaming uh, platform for talking about games. We are and talking being a gamer. And be yeah, just like being with your gamer friends. Just Technically, this is gaming right now. We are mm -hmm. gaming. Yeah, and we get points in terms of listens. And um, and we will eventually eat a ghost on here, just like Pac-Man. And um, we're on we the have line. To get really high first. We have to. I gotta take a lot of pills. Yeah, we yeah. gotta get. We gotta be turning way the fuck up, and then we can see ghosts and eat them. Right now, ghosts can just kill us, but we'll soon we'll us. kill back. Exactly. We we take the big the big pills, which are DMT. We go to the DMT universe. We just straight up eat one of those machine elves. Anyway, so we're online with uh, RS Benedict. Hello. Uh, she's a writer and now a podcaster. So obviously she's done something terrible in her previous life. And. Um, <laughs> Yeah, like were we at the same like death camp together or something? Like, how <laughs> you gotta have done some shit to like be a writer and podcaster? Um, Both angered the same witch. Yeah, Baba we're all Yaga holding was... our our dog-eared copies of the the Tin Drum and our our unsold manuscripts, and then our microphones, and they're like, "You know what you did?" And we're like, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah." I'll start digging. <laughs> Do you want me to dig anything in particular? And they're like, no, just just dig. Just find a spout and start digging. And you're like, okay, okay. And we are going to be kind of talking about digging today because you dig graves and we're talking about death. We're nice. often talking about death, but um, today we'll be talking about it kind of exclusively. I say kind of exclusively. We're probably going to veer off and talk about anime or something. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Well, anime is a type of death, really, watching anime. Anime is death, yes. And um, so, uh, RS, or Raquel, uh, do you want to just briefly introduce yourself and, and your oeuvre to, to the public? Okay. I am RS Benedict, a speculative fiction author. Um, and also, I run a little writing podcast called Write Good. That's R-I-T-E-G-U-D. But wait, that's not how you spell those things. So That's you've right. already failed in writing good straight <laughs> off the bat there. I've been demolished wow. with a logic. So there's a chance that the act of making the podcast was deleterious to RS's uh, intellect. Good point. Terrible. Yeah. Terrible. Sort of like how we snuck in the uh, we snuck in some some forward slashes and those don't those don't go in words. Those are I, I wanted to make it look witch house. I'm like really nostalgic for witch house music. I didn't want to make it completely ungoogleable. So I just put in some forward slashes. Witch house. Um, we should have been named just a triangle, like the Unicode just triangle. Oh, that'd be so hard to Google. I love it. <laughs> it'd be, it'd be Fuck real SEO. Time, right? Yeah. Just a bunch of triangles. <laughs> Wasn't there a band that was just a bunch of alternating up and down triangles? And there was. It was so good, probably. Um, so we are going to talk about... Wait, uh, are we for real going to just skip past Marianne Williamson like this? We can do my Crystal <laughs> Queen dirty? <laughs> <laughs> 
Maybe no, that's we why we're podcasters in this life. We offended her in some previous life. We've now she... been ensnared in her psychic jail. <laughs> Cast down her golden egg. Throne. We got our greasy fingerprints all over her golden egg. Ugh, and now yeah. we're podcasters. I, I assume that's why I don't hear much about Sira anymore. It's just she solved it with her golden egg of joy or love or whatever. She, Absolutely. And not she just because the love got bored. from her body. Kind of gross, but yeah, go, she, Marianne. She laid down like like an Eva, and projected <laughs> love love missiles from her body. Beautiful. They soared across the sky, uh, crushed over the Atlantic, and in that beautiful arc of gravity's rainbow, annihilated her enemies in Syria. You love to see it. You just love it. It's it's a beautiful thing. So yeah, she was. Uh, she's now a vanity candidate. Uh, did you hear the like conspiracy theory, oh, semi-conspiracy theory, that she's like a front for transcendental meditation? And, oh my god! And that um, like because <clears throat> the, the transcendental meditation organization uh, did something called the Natural Law Party a few years back and ran some candidates and obviously didn't go anywhere. So she's like their way of getting into politics. I do and... love the idea of big transcendental meditation, like being some kind of conspiracy running entity. That's that's pretty cool, actually. Yeah, they're all just like sat around in their things like like Sela in Evangelion and they're like uh, making their plans and yeah, then Marianne Robinson appears in the middle of the thing and they're like, you should in create the third impact by running a weird campaign that's become a meme already. I'm Washington I, in DC into that Oregon town and wild, wild country, which honestly wouldn't be that bad. Yeah. Marked improvement. I, I, bet, I, I bet Andrew Yang is so pissed that he's not the meme because yes. he was going for the meme so hard and he didn't meme so at hard. all. He tried too hard, man. He flew too close to the sun. Yeah. He, he's... It's how all memers die, annihilated oh. by the uncaring sun. Mm, the oh. dankness drawn out of him. But uh, <laughs> I do I'm like also... how she has she has CIA ties indirectly, Marianne. Williams. Yeah, the uh, the specific New Age uh, branch that she got her start with is technically one that spun out of the CIA New Age programs in the uh, right. in the fifties and sixties. Oh, we were was, trying was to create like a, psychic soldiers. Men who yeah. stare goats thing. Yeah. The Operation like the, uh, be all the Jedi the army shit. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so, so it is. Yeah. It is. It is Evangelion. She's just in nerve. We've got a deep well here. I'm ready for the third impact and the fourth impact. Has anyone seen her and Psychomantis in the same place at the same time? <laughs> no, I don't he think always so. wears that full suit. We don't know what's that, underneath yeah. that mask. It could be her. He, or should I say, Marianne Williamson. <laughs> Marianne There's Williamson no knows exactly what PS1 game you've been playing recently. It's There's uncanny. no second control report in life. We will be killed by Marianne Williamson. <laughs> we will be turned into angels. So, I yeah. just couldn't believe that we were going to like, hey, here's the news, and then fucking skip past that. Like, that didn't happen. Like, that's not what <laughs> is on everyone's mind. There is important shit going on, okay? 
A, a man is the spooky left candidate. Finally, I feel so seen. I feel represented. Yeah. Finally, our insane goth president has revealed themselves. Anyway, I mean, Alan Moore can't do it, so it has to be her. Yeah. But you know, I, I think we're, we're talking about this, but we're missing the big issue, which was the the death of Andrew Nago Nago no no in uh, Portland. Yeah, pouring one yeah. out for my for my boy. <laughs> um, assassinated by Antifa fascist super soldiers. And, A vegan um, milkshake and some silly string. Yeah, uh, rest in that, peace. That milkshake had cement in it, apparently. I really yeah. hope that no one tests whether you can actually make cement from a milkshake, but um, I'm guessing not because of sugar. But um, yeah, just special wily coyote quick drying cement that just instantly hardens and turns you into a statue. Hmm. It's it's rough out there, man. Just it's so it's so devastating that one cup sized rock instantly killed him. Hmm. Yeah. Right. And, you know, we ought we to remember the good times with him, though, like when he uh, published stuff about um, phrenology and how it's good, you know, you've got to measure people's heads, uh, when he put out all the names of uh, people, like including some friends of the show uh, who are journalists, calling them Antifa sympathizers, and now they're on a, a kill list with Atom Waffen. So there's some good times there with that he's been responsible for. So, um, yeah, just um, yeah, RIP in peace, man. Just pulling one out for you. Rip prayers up. Uh, and uh, that Charlottesville dude has gone to jail for life. So... Yeah, fuck him. Yeah, he got yeah. fucked. God, yeah. I was mystified that, as someone who lives in Virginia, that he actually got, like, fucked by, by the court. And they were like, nah, this guy can go to hell. Yeah, pleasantly they, surprised. Yeah, they, they they knew the media around this that they had to like go for as much as they can on here. And I think he he pled guilty, so he couldn't get death penalty. Am I right about that? Yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, they they knew they had to go as much as they could because if yeah, they don't want to riot. They want to want uh, yeah, another Rodney King style riot over this kind of thing. Ironically, makes Virginia's government more progressive than Portland, Oregon's. <laughs> oh, that'd be very easy. Well, we have uh, more blackface, but less less racism, which is weird to say to anyone who doesn't live in Oregon or has never Googled the history specifically of Portland, hmm. the city where black people couldn't be. Ooh. <laughs> Yeah, that's 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 a real thing. It was a sundown town until like well into the twentieth century. Hmm. Yeah, the, I mean, the whole state was set up as just like a a readout for uh, Confederates to go to to make their little ethno state. And yeah, Portland it's has this which like, is, reputation that's completely in at odds with its reality. It's absolute like it's one of those things where you don't necessarily sit and interrogate um why in certain uh highly considered liberal spaces in America there's also a deficit of people of color. Um and then you start Googling it and you're like, ah, there it is. Yeah, they're yeah, they're white. Okay, yeah, yeah. I forgot about 
yeah, that comes with its own bag of shit, doesn't it? And you're you're looking at uh, laws about how um like people uh black folk couldn't own property within the bounds of the city of Portland for like it was only a couple decades ago that those laws no. were rescinded. Yeah, and they do weird shit nowadays too, like um banning hip hop shows. They, they kind of shut down black culture in the city. What the fuck? But, like, I'm just um, picturing like a pretty lady with a ukulele singing a slow, anemic, high-pitched Deutschland, Deutschland Uber Alice or something. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. That is the spirit of Portland. That is, yeah. The spirit of the 90s is alive. So, um, yeah, so the world is variously good because Marianne Robinson's going to like destroy the world and make us all one in a big pool of LCL, and bad because they're still Nazis. So... Yeah, mixed bag, I think, the news this week. Um, they also but... decided to make uh, Evangelion not gay. Oh, we're going we're gonna to yeah. do a whole Evangelion episode, but... Uh, Already yeah. talking about anime. Ugh. I know, I'm sorry, but um, yeah, we're going to do, do a whole one for, our, for patrons. Technically, uh, I'm talking about angels right now. <laughs> it's theology. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, we're going to do a whole thing, but basically, really sum up, the translation or just like interpretation of the subtitles was completely butchered in many ways that were both baffling and political, like inserting leftist terrorism into it for some unknown reason. Well, Oh, all, also, also we know literary why. sabotage. Yeah. Sorry? It's, it's also literary sabotage. It's like they looked at the text of the show and were like, yeah, how can we how can we fuck that one up? Mm, yeah, just totally oh, ignoring so the, all the subtext and all the context in there, and just like baffling stuff, like calling, saying like third children, Shinji is the third children, like it's plurals don't work. It's a singular. He's the third child. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so, yeah, we'll, we'll do a whole thing about that, and you'll have to listen to it. If you pet Patreon us, so um, yeah, get on that, and you can listen to our incredibly pedantic uh, things about anime and probably theology as well. But um, we're going to talk about death today, hey, because we don't do that enough apparently. Um, RS was kindly kind enough to suggest the book uh, "Smoke Gets in Your Eyes" by uh, Caitlin. Uh, is it Doty? Doty? I'm not sure. Doty, yeah. Let's say it's Doty. Yeah, let's do that. And um, so Miss Doty is a former mortician, a YouTube personality and blogger, and she's written a couple of books. The first one, Smoking Your Eyes, came out in 2014. Uh, she, okay, so she hasn't, un unlike a lot of people, she has a, a very defined origin story. When she was eight years old, she saw a child fall to her death from a balcony at a shopping mall. And she had this, like, uh, she talks about this in the book, um, a very, like, strong reaction to that. She had developed, like, an obsessive compulsive disorder and basically, like, a massive focus on death throughout her life that led her to be, become a mortician. And, well, you, uh, Raquel, RS, you take it from here. What, like... What is the the book about? Let's just summarize it real quick. Well, the book is part a memoir of her talking about her time working in a crematorium and part ah cat 
sorry, interrupting cat, and partially a manifesto uh, arguing that Americans really need to accept and confront our own mortalities and confront death instead of sanitizing it and hiding it and denying it and pretending it's not real. Yeah, and um, I think in tone, it's pretty funny, actually, in a lot of places. It is. Uh, it's, it is very funny, a sort of, well, morbid humor, haha. Huh? Yeah. Um, There's a bit with um, uh, two parents are paying for their child's um, cremation, I guess, and one of them is about to pay, and the other one goes, oh, use the other credit card so you get air miles. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Gloriously American. That classic Absolutely. comedic situation where you're uh <laughs> you're you're trying to burn up your dead child and you know classic scenario for, for humor. Absolutely. It, it was I, I, and if you want if you want dead baby jokes, this book's definitely got some dead baby jokes. There's an entire chapter about crema uh cremating children cremating babies because that is part of the job and and the crematoriums kind of like them because they go up real quick you can just toss a Yikes. couple of babies in there before the day is over they go real fast bam wow yeah and I, I skipped that chapter where but, uh, we, we we mentioned this offhandedly and and it, it does have this immediate like absolutely surreal and insane affect but it it does bring up that necessary point that like we live in a world and we, and we know very well that we live in a world where children do die. And, you know, obviously if you're not an absolute piece of shit, that doesn't bring you any pleasure, but it's also a reality of the world. The fact that we've, we've cordoned off and made specialized this kind of labor um, for, for actually a number of centuries now in, in the West that we then uh, duly stigmatize where it's like, Someone needs to handle the dead, and we know that, and we know that it needs to be done with some measure of respect that feels fitting to the life of the person. But also, we don't want to like the person doing it, because if we like them, then that means we have to acknowledge it in some way and offer respect to this notion that the corpse burner is like a, a, a dude in the supermarket. Yeah, like morticians get a terrible rap. They're like the butt of jokes. They're either like weird goths or necrophiliacs. To be I think fair, Caitlin Doughty is a weird goth, so... <laughs> I don't think she's yeah. a weird goth. She she's is a, a pretty goth, regular goth. <laughs> yeah, as far as goths go. <laughs> she's a, you know, a little picture on her Wikipedia page. She's got uh, dark hair, but she's smiling. She's got a red dress on. You know, she's not a... It's it's like the uh, off-putting goths, goth-putting okay. people who, um, who I'm thinking of when I think of like how a mortician is typically portrayed in the media. Oh, but, like a Tumblr witch stealing bones. Like that's the kind of weird goth. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. One of those. Okay. One of those. Yeah, I don't think she'd steal any so, bones. She's pretty good about that. Yeah. And uh, Not her bones. That's how you get ghosts. <laughs> no. That's a classic ghost scenario. You take my bones, I'm going to haunt you, even if I like Absolutely. you. That's a free haunting. <laughs> it's free real so, estate. <laughs> so why, why pick this book and why pick this subject? Why, why did it interest you? 
Well, I've always been a little bit spooky and weird, a little bit of a teenage goth. So uh, I was always kind of interested in death. And um, I think I picked this book in particular uh, because, well, a couple of years ago, my father passed away. And going through that made me see just how bad America is at dealing with death. Like, mm. I had about a week off of work, and then I was expected to just not grieve anymore. I actually got written up at work two weeks afterward because I was in a bad mood and I, my supervisor wanted to write me up for having a bad attitude two weeks oh. after my dad died. And Jesus I was trying to talk. Christ. Yeah, it was not great. Um, I quit that job. That's um, good. Yeah, I, that was the moment I decided as soon as the life insurance check comes in, I'm, I'm fucking out of here. Um, and, and I did. And I'm in a way better job now where I work with human beings. And it's pretty cool. Um, nice. But also something I noticed is when I would try to talk to other people about it, talk to friends, they'd be so uncomfortable and so freaked out and would say like, hey, maybe you should talk to a therapist and like try to leave. Basically, like not not. Hey, I'm I'm you know, I'm here for you. But a therapist might help, too, because that's valid. That's reasonable. But like saying, hey, get a therapist instead of offering condolences, you know? Hmm. Um, and it was almost like being sad over this is a mental illness, you know? Like actually grieving for someone that you loved is kind of treated like a kind of illness and, and death is treated as like an embarrassing condition and not the reality that waits for all of us. Um, and basically, I, I actually do see a therapist and I realized that I picked the right therapist when she said, yeah, grief isn't a mental illness. That's not something mm -hmm. you can cure. You're supposed to feel that way. Yeah. Sometimes life fucking life. sucks. <laughs> like, <laughs> sometimes shit sucks. You don't have to be happy all the time. That's a crazy yeah, that's thing a, to it, want. It's a um it, it it's a cross it's a cross condition that um that society places on us where we're simultaneously supposed to grieve not be or we're, we're not supposed to show outward signs of grief so like if, if you don't grieve at all you're considered inhuman if you grieve it makes people intensely uncomfortable and then I, beyond there we treat grief as something you're supposed to have and then not have anyone who's lost someone uh of that level of closeness like i i lost my father about eight years ago too you acknowledge pretty quick that it's not really a thing that you stop feeling. You get, I mean, it's the right. cliche, you get better at feeling it. You get better at having it be part of your day rather than something that utterly derails your day. But right. yeah, this, this idea of people like, what do you mean you're still sad that your dad's dead? And you're like, did you hear the words that you just said? Did, did, you, did you hear them in your brain before you articulated them? Yeah, it's, it, I mean, at least people, other people who've gone through it get it. What The phrase I've heard before is like, welcome to the club. Welcome to this shitty, shitty club. <laughs> yeah, Dead Dad's Club. It's, uh, I, yeah, I have it's a not a great club. Make that kind of joke. Don't recommend it. It's not a good club. <laughs> it's, like, it's a it's really a club shitty club. We it hate sucks. it. We can't leave. I, yeah, I'm not a fan, personally. It's not a good club. Worse than anime club. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, the anime club probably have dads that are alive. Some of them. You can leave anime club. You can't leave this club. This That's club true. just blows. It's, it's not voluntary. You know, you, you enter anime club because you've made mistakes. Dead dad club is, is 
not so much your fault. <laughs> Probably, hopefully. Um, so that's kind of what drew me to this subject. And I actually uh, heard of Caitlin uh, through her YouTube channel originally because I was just looking up stuff about grief and funerals and, and death and the way Americans sanitize death because I started to feel like so weird and crazy, like the way no one mentioned this huge thing, the, the, the taboo and talking about it. And there's this weird sense of unreality as you're going through it because the body is like taken away so quickly and prepared and like shellacked with really garish kind of makeup so so quickly and there's just it feels like we're all trying to pretend that something this isn't really happening and I feel like it makes it harder to grieve because we're just denying this reality of it like one thing Caitlin talks about is why do we want to make dead bodies look like they're alive like I understand mm, cleaning yeah. them up a little bit because they're probably like super gross and and creepy but like trying to make sure they look just alive is pretty fucking weird yeah i had you know um, it's it's like when parents tell their kids like oh jingles the dog he he went to a farm in kentucky where he'll be happy that's where he is like just trying to pretend oh your father's taking a nap it's fine (laughs) i remember when my uh, mother-in-law died a few years back now we had a not at my i i strongly objected to this we had an open casket funeral Mm. and yeah, looking at her, like from far, from a few feet back, it looked she was was sleeping there, and close up, it was clearly a, a corpse with a horrible amount of makeup on. Yeah, and way I, too much lipstick, right? Yeah, yeah. Dad's girlfriend was like trying to wipe it off. Going like, <laughs> you've painted him like a trollop. What have you done? You <laughs> would never wear that. That's tacky. Yeah, she she and never the more tissue. She, she got a lipstick uh, lady yeah. in real life. She. Like put a little bit of foundation on but she wasn't like crazy about makeup but it, yeah the last time i ever saw her was like yeah she was just like done up like i don't want to say use the term cheap french prostitute but uh close i i had a remarkably insane experience it was so like tremendously morbid that i i, I felt like i was going insane uh so at my at my dad's uh open casket um wake not funeral he he was cremated so the funeral was more just a funeral service rather than uh let's all stare at the dead body game but we did have a wake um which was open casket so we had to go in there a little bit early to make sure that the the mortician's work was satisfactory and to be brief the first go wasn't wasn't quite a winner and it was not number wang. He looked like a melting candle. Oh, God. And so we had to look, me and my brother and my mom had to look at my dad, who looked like a fucking melted candle, and be like, no, this isn't quite right. He looked yeah. like a human man. You need to do this again. <laughs> and then it was it was like 10 minutes before the wakes. They were like, and you need to do it very quickly. Oh, so he looked he looked almost human when we did the wake. Oh, and we had to just sit there because like the wake is more so, it's this weird um because we're so paranoid about actually accepting death, we put the family in these tremendously uncomfortable positions of like right. hang out near your very nearly not or very obviously not alive, uh, but like 
uncanny valley dead dad just stick around yeah. near him so other people can come up and cry but you can't cry if you cry I... they'll feel weird right <laughs> yeah my uh my mother-in-law was a big like old school heavy metal fan she like like uh motley crew and people like that and so we played uh november rain by guns and roses at her funeral nice but not nice actually because the the album version of that um right it's like this, 20 minutes long yeah because there's like a skit in the middle of it <laughs> what it's a really beautiful song for about four minutes then uh there's then there's like it just goes the music actually fades into the background and there's uh axel rose calling some guy on the phone to tell him he'll fuck them up and <laughs> So I had to, I had to run from the fir, from the front of the um the, the church to the back to like kick the CD player until it stopped and oh my God. prevent that horrible thing from happening. God. So yeah, I, I, I've probably been to the only funeral where Axel Rose has said fuck. And, nice. um, so yeah, that's that's my funny funeral story. But hey. um, yeah. The, the um, interplay between horrible grief and just utter, like, Monty Python level absurdity is, <laughs> yeah, another consequence of the fact that we don't talk about this stuff and we're not very good at it. Right. Like, the only good experience I had at a funeral was when, like, everyone, I think it was my grandma's funeral, and uh, we were just driving back from the crematorium together and my granddad just told us this dirty joke about irish people nice and um yeah we just all had a good laugh and that was uh yeah that 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 worked i now have a really racist joke about the irish that i can deploy at any moment now um (laughs) that'll be just for our patreon subscribers and uh (laughs) it's like grandma would have wanted yeah so grandma really did hate irish people uh, I think she might have. I mean, she, she, was, she, was she was very British. Welsh. Well, oh. Welsh. Like, okay, very, yeah, very well- ethnically Welsh. I don't think there's oh. a huge uh, anti-Welsh uh, sentiment, uh, anti-Irish sentiment in Wales, but um, I'm sure she would have had some animosity towards them. I <laughs> like, you just suppose, and you're like, I, I guess my grandma could have been racist to the Irish. That's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Racist to a lot of people. I mean, I don't, I don't know why they would like. Oh, the Irish are fine though. But yeah. um, yeah. So, so we're gonna like talk about the the reasons behind uh, and the consequences of and possible cures for our culture's really crappy way of dealing with death in a minute. But uh, before we do that, let's play some death metal because that yes. just makes sense. It makes so much sense. The metal that's good. Yeah, all metal is good. Like all that's dogs true. are good boys. Um, except for the uh, um, symphonic black metal is bad. Um, like 50% of power metal is bad. Uh, a lot of melodic death metal is just extremely, extremely bad. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And if anyone has ever made scar metal, that's probably bad as well. If they make that, I will kill myself live on air. Wow. So if you hate me, that's, <laughs> you know, that's the way to do it. 
and I'll have to like avenge you because that is in our podcasting contract. Yeah. Um, by like forging a sword from your bones and killing the scar metal band with it. Nice. At so, least something good would come out of my death, like a yeah. sword made out of bones. Yeah, that's really pretty cool metal. Like, like the like the pommel could be a be a skull. Yeah. Pretty, it would probably dope. shoot ghosts because I mean it is made oh, out of yeah. bones. You just fire ghosts at people. It? Yeah, that that's sick. Yeah, I'm playing with the master yeah. sword when he's at full health. He can just like throw sword energy at people. He can just throw ghost energy at people all the time. Nice. Pac-Man doesn't have a sword. Like, how how serious is he taking this ghost hunting business? Like Jesus. Not at all. Yeah, Pac-Man's just a joke, man. Fuck Pac-Man. Fucking yeah. slacker. <laughs> piece of shit <laughs> wow um, Benny doesn't even have a fucking job yeah he just walks around a labyrinth eating things like i could do he's that just, he's just a pill popper trapped in a warehouse <laughs> the ghosts are just cops trying to get him out <laughs> and he keeps him scurrying around eating bits of metal left on the ground He's like, the metal makes me strong. And they're like, no, it's making you sick. Occasional you cherries, though. He does get his five a day. Why do you think that. regular fruit is the best power-up you can have? It's because you're malnourished, Pac-Man. Okay, you're yellow because so... you got jaundice. <laughs> yeah, that, so that's the uh, dark version of Pac-Man that is going to come out <laughs> soon. Just Christopher Nolan's Pac-Man. <laughs> but I'm going to play a song by the band uh, Cerebral Rot. Uh, they're on 20 Bucks Spin, which is the good label. That's one of like four or five good labels. Uh, this is a song called, and you're going to love this, Swamped in Festering Excrementia. Nice. I don't even know if excrementia is a word. Yeah, if I don't know what that means. I think it just means excrement. I know it's gross, and that's what I want. Mm. Yeah. And this song is pretty gross, too. It's, um, yeah, pretty slow, like, gross old-school death metal. Um, and it's on an album called Odious Descent into Decay. The front cover is a bunch of corpses decaying at the bottom of a tree, and there's, like, a river of pus and shit or something. I don't know. It's just just absolutely horrible. That their, their, their logo is completely incomprehensible. For some reason the album title is written in uh Italic Times New Roman. Don't know why, but they don't care. And um yeah, it's just um just a horrible, horrible thing. So here it is. And um we'll be back in a minute to talk about more death.
that was Swamped in Festering Excrementia uh, by Cerebral Rot. Uh, Cerebral Rot, uh, is that what happens when I watch TV? Hey. Okay, thank you. Hey, hey I, I got Cerebral <laughs> Rot last night when I was watching Home Improvement. I think that's what Andy Ngo got after he got hit by that... Uh... After he got hit by that milkshake, that's why he had to go to the hospital. I said, home improvement. Oh. Thank you. Okay, yeah. No, no. Okay. That was, okay. All right, good. I can do it for longer. Don't, but... Um, I got to tell you, I was not anywhere near out of air. Nice. I can do that for an extremely long time, and I do at work. Wow. That's good. I, I I'm very good to work with. Yeah. I have a lot of seniority, so I can make people listen to me do things like that. <laughs> <laughs> Technically, I think that makes me a bad boss. Probably. But I don't care. You will Someone be should probably choke you. All in the revolution for that. I like to tell the the my coworkers train jokes. Or just tell them <laughs> things I think about Sonic the Hedgehog. Oh my god! <laughs> I'm like, come, come gather around. I have thoughts about the Hedgehog Man. Why does he walk on two legs like a man? But what? But he doesn't have a human name. But the fox does. I, I was like maybe thirty before I realized that uh, miles per hour is miles per hour. So, um, <sighs> that's, in, in case anyone ever thought I was smart, I'm not. Miles, tails, prower. To be fair to me, which is the only good fairness, uh, the tails bit in the middle kind of threw me off because I was reading Miles, tails, prower instead of reading Miles, prower. Like if it had just been Miles, prower, I would have realized. But um, yeah, uh, I, was, I was about the same age when I realized that Ekans and Arbok in Pokemon are just Snake and Cobra backwards. Ooh. Uh, I really hope no someone. Way. Yeah, I know, right? No I checked all the way. all eight hundred Pokemon, and there's none others. That are, like Pikachu is not like mouse backwards or anything. But um, yeah, we're going to talk about some more about death right now. Um, so, why do why are we so bad at dealing with death, particularly in in the West? I guess in the Anglosphere. Hmm, why in the Anglosphere? Um, that, that is a good question. I mean, we weren't always this bad at dealing with death. Um, up to a couple of hundred years ago, I think we had a lot of elaborate death rituals, which people today think of them as kind of spooky, but I completely understand them now. I completely understand the whole Victorian, like, wear a veil for this many months, wear this color glove for that many months, and then switch to gloves with one stripe and keep the mirrors covered for this much time. Like it, it used to seem kind of weird and pointless, but now I kind of get it. Like the, the value of ritual, the value of having some kind of guidance of how to deal with this and some kind of way to show in public, like, Hey, I'm grieving. Don't ask me for much right now. <laughs> Please lower your standards when you deal with me. Um, but I, I do think, and, and, uh, Kate Lynn's book talks about this a lot is that a, a lot of it has to do with sort of the rise of this immense 
obsession with optimism and self-improvement that's particularly uh, bad in the USA. I mean, in the US, we have to think of everything as an opportunity for growth. Everything has to be relentlessly optimistic and you have to look on the brighter side of just about everything. And I, I kind of think that's a little bit sick in a way because there's some stuff that there's not really a silver lining to and, and demanding that people look on the bright side of something really, really awful, I think is a little bit cruel. But uh, that I, I think that's part of death, too, why we look at death that way, because there's not really a bright side to it most of the time, unless the person who died fucking sucks. Like, it, it's just a fucking bummer. <laughs> and there's not really a way to come back from that either. I mean, currently, we, we almost treat death and, and decay and just the natural course of our bodies falling apart as a failure like right like if you if you do enough cardio and you eat enough kale or whatever you're not going to die you're not going to get sick you're not ever going to get heart disease and that is ridiculous <laughs> i mean obviously uh good health good health habits will keep you alive longer and will keep your body in good condition longer probably but time's going to happen. You're going to fall apart no matter what you do. And I it's... Just, go ahead, <clears> sorry. sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say it's particularly endemic to tech guys like um, uh, Jack Dorsey and his uh, fasting um, uh, the, the Apple guy. I forget his name. Why am I forgetting his name? Main Apple guy. Um, Steve Jobs. Him. Steve, Steve Jobs. Jobs, yes. Right, which ironically Steve is what died. killed him. Yeah, his he nonsense. decided that if he would just drink green juice or something, he'd he'd be fine instead of listening to the doctors when he had a completely treatable version of cancer. Yeah, it's like eighty percent of people survive that cancer. But He's he rich, so his chances were probably juice. at like ninety percent because he can he afford like, like the really good treatments and shit. Yeah, he he'd be like when was it Shaq like just cured himself of AIDS, and um... no, that was Magic Johnson. <laughs> Magic that, Johnson, no, okay. No, uh, Shaq is just tall. Why would you think that Shaq has HIV? I don't know. I, I don't know exactly what it does. I, did, I didn't watch that Philadelphia movie. Maybe it makes you tall. Um, I hate you. <laughs> you are. AIDS can't reach that high. It's really small. Like, if you're, you're tall, they just can't get to the basketball. top of you. <laughs> I, I know nothing of basketball. And. It's so simple. The ball goes in the hoop, Gareth. I do. I, I, I've played basketball, but I know nothing of the people involved in it. All right. Here's, here's a rundown. Shaq is the tall one. They're all the tall one. Shaq's very tall. Shaq's okay. nearly as tall as the fucking hoop. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Like he's legit like Are... just under six feet or eight feet tall. <laughs> what? Yeah, I almost say just under six under feet six tall. Feet. That's amazing. Which is, which is much less impressive. Shaq, the 5'11 wonder. <laughs> He's so fucking tall. He'd have small man syndrome, and that's what makes him a good player. He's overcompensating. Whoa, you think 5'11 is small man? Because, uh, what? It's not okay. Is. Okay, fine. Okay. Not like a bit of like a manlit energy to me right now. But uh, back onto death, because that's what I'm thinking of now that I've been called small. Um, <laughs> so, what 
what can be done to make death better? Like just in our own lives and in like, and during the like funeral process. So we actually have um we actually have a mild answer to this. So first, it's it's worth noting that we shouldn't take the exoticized stance that the West is bad at handling with death, and therefore everywhere else is good at handling death. Grief is still a universal experience. There's still amounts of stigma regarding death and daily confrontation with death, and the psychological burden of witnessing and internalizing death is still. That that's that's a human difficulty. It can be made more difficult by society, but it's not like it's not like oh, this person's Buddhist, so they don't care about dying. Like that's not that's not real. Um, another second thing uh, to keep in mind is that our terror of confronting the death that we see around us in the world is precisely p- mirrored by the fact that we imagine it for ourselves. Um, it's the same, it's the root process for any given phobia or fear. Like, we're not scared of heights because being on a ladder is bad. We're not scared of spiders because, ooh, icky, too many legs. Uh, and we're not scared of the results of bigotry, uh, to pick something a little bit more like politically pressing, because merely being said, merely being called degrading things is scary. That's not, the fear comes from this very, the body interpreting physical threat or the uh, potential for physical threat as also the potential for physical death. And given that our bodies develop psyches basically to drive them and help make operation easier, but unfortunately we experience the psyche and not necessarily the body directly, uh, we that, that same psyche carries with it the greatest fear of its own self-termination. The fact that in a funeral you can witness that the body doesn't cease to exist when you die doesn't pierce our terror of death. Because the thing we're scared of losing isn't the body. The thing we're scared of losing is the consciousness. Um, and when we start approaching that, we actually have a very direct sort of angle for uh, either... Uh, like meditation or prayer like it doesn't even have to be a, a theologically driven thing just sort of oh it's it's weird because my therapist uh brought this up to me for um i had a very very severe mental breakdown when i was much younger regarding um grappling with that notion of universal death that not just every living thing, but there will be a point where none of the physical objects that you've ever seen in your life exist. And that's, that can be tremendously difficult to, to actually process. Like, to, to say it in a way that acknowledges that it is real is very different from sitting with that in your gut and allowing yourself to imagine it. It's, it's, very easy to see how that can cause quite a lot of psychological distress. Yeah. But at the same time, doing that piecemeal little bit by little bit, this is, this is the weird part has actually been found to increase general levels of calmness and happiness, as well as the ability to grapple with day-to-day struggle, because it's not so much that struggle disappears under that. And that's not even that fear of death disappears or that grief disappears, but, we don't 
we don't panic and lose our minds when we accidentally cut ourselves in the kitchen making food. It sucks and it feels bad and we don't like it, but you know, you go, uh, this is something to deal with and I can, you know, I can feel how I want to feel about it, but I also need to, to grapple with it. And likewise, decatastrophizing um, the emotional end of these things is really the, uh, the major bit. Mm. Yeah. And uh, Raquel, that's your... quite a bit. Um, there's, there are sections when she just discusses how people sort of face the reality of death, often their own death or a loved one's death versus people who don't. Like she had, she talks about having a customer at the crematorium who was freaking out and saying about planning the funeral. She said, oh, we didn't know what, we didn't have any time to plan for this. Mom only went into hospice six months ago. Like six months? Your mom's <laughs> been dying for six months and you didn't prepare for this? Like you knew it's just immense death denial to see a relative go into hospice and think like, yeah, we don't need to think about the funeral. My, uh, um, my mom gave me a very uncomfortable talk when I, when I was younger. Um, and this is thankfully with my dad. And then I had to have it a second time with my mom after he passed, but of going over like medical directives and uh, the function of their will and they were like, we're not going to, you're not going to enjoy this talk because I'm telling I, you what to do if I, if I need to die or if I want to die. And then yeah. after I'm dead. But on that same hand, it's like, to expand on your point, they didn't have six months to deal with this. They had the entire duration of their mom's life. Hmm. That's it's absolutely not like it, a smart thing to do. Like just deal with that stuff ahead of time so that, you know, if God forbid something happens and like mom's in a persistent vegetative state, the, the other, the, the kids don't have to like have that horrible guilt of, Oh, should we unplug her? What, what would she have wanted? Like now, you know what she wanted and you can do that and do that in a way that you know that she wanted and, and in a way that feels honorable and fair. And you don't have that like guilt, that confusion, that feeling of being totally lost and not knowing what to do. And, talking about end-of-life care is incredibly sensible and, and good and a really loving thing to do for your family. And it infuriates me that, remember a couple of years ago when Obama mentioned something about like, yeah, we're going to also think about end-of-life care, people flipped the fuck out. Oh, the death panels thing. Yeah, the death panels thing. And all it was is, hey, think about end of life care, which is a super practical, really, really, really smart thing to do. And I've found that people who work in medicine tend to do that because the rest of us see just TV movies where doctors miraculously, you know, bring everybody back to normal, but doctors and nurses see the reality, which is like, here's this lady in her seventies who's had three strokes and we're going to revive her again. And every time she comes back, she's just a little more fucked up and miserable. And her life is just shittier and shittier. Like doctors and nurses I find are way more likely to have like a do not resuscitate order or something saying, yeah, after this time, quality of life is just not happening anymore. And it's really a lot better for yourself and for your family to just sort of let go you're you're not coming back you're not young again hmm. i had the uh i had the benefit of having a mom who lost her father when she was very young she was about 19 and it was just like just a heart attack um 
to be fair, the doctor had given him at least forewarning that his heart was going to be an issue, but still the, you know, heart attack out of the blue, which right. coincidentally, it's the same thing that killed my dad. That's like, boom, heart attack. Uh, now you're dead. Um, in retrospect, it was easy to do a postmortem and figure out where it came from and see it as hard coded in. But that took um, the weird clarity that comes after someone dies where you're like hovering outside of your body and have access to the perfect crystal psycho mind because you like can't. This is also uh, a pretty common experience for that kind of thing. I felt like traumatically disconnected from my body the second my mom told me that my dad passed away and it like clicked in my head. It literally felt like I got up out of my chair and stood behind myself while my body just stayed in the chair. Not in some creepy like, wow. oh, uh, I was a ghost kind of way, but just the the immediate traumatic dissociation was more intense than any other dissociative feeling i've had from any other kind of trauma and i like i've I've dealt with dissociation before but that one i quite literally felt like my psyche just was trying to leave the room and my body didn't very strange wow yeah yeah trauma can really really fuck your brain um it does but the weird benefit of having a mom who lost her dad so young in similar ways is she got to witness first her mom and her family in general not have a plan for what happens when someone goes and even covering the little things like he covered the bills uh my grandma didn't know how to drive um so because it was he passed away in 1969 and they were like a very traditional kind of couple so right and then all of a sudden she was like I obviously can't operate if I don't know how to pay the bills and I don't know how to drive and I don't have anyone to teach me. So I guess I'm going to learn it myself or learn it from neighbors. And, you know, thank God my grandma was both um, smart and diligent. So she did eventually put that together, but it also drilled, she drilled into my mom's head. Like you have to know that this is a thing that you need to prepare for. And so, uh, yeah, death sort of swarmed around me for a good chunk of my early life. Like, all of my grandparents on my mom's side, and I say all of because they're, it was my grandma and my step-grandpa, uh, because obviously, you know, my grandpa died well before I was born, but then also my um, my grandma's sister, so my great-aunt, um, who filled a similar kind of grandma-ish role, all died in a cluster. Um <sighs> It was like one a year for three years. And wow. yeah, the, the, the act of processing at the age of like six and then the age of eight and then the age of nine, these people, uh, these older people dying and then immediately having that uncomfortable extrapolation that unless that this is what's going to happen to all of my classmates, to my parents, to my friends, to my teachers, to people that I don't know, they will get old they will die. And these are very normal deaths for the elderly that they experience. That like nothing outlandish, not accidental deaths. One was um non-Hodgkin's lymphoma uh for my grandma who is in her mid 80s. So that's not an uncommon uh huh. illness for someone in their 80s. Um my step grandfather again, he was in his uh mid to late eighties and he had like 
uh, a liver issue, I think. But okay. so no, normal things like that. Um, yeah. Looking around and trying to be like being that young and looking at my very young classmates and all I could think about was, okay, we're all going to get old and die like that. Or the other option, we died before then. Those are the two options available was just like, so I had to see a therapist for quite a bit when I was young. I became goth very quickly. Um, yeah. But bringing that up in a half joking manner, but I, I, it, it's something that I think re will resonate with everyone speaking here and hopefully some people listening. That That kind of that directionality arose more out of like necessity because I didn't, as we were bringing up with the constant fixation on positivity, youthfulness, uh, liveliness, <sighs> I, there was nothing that reflected the things that I was experiencing emotionally, nothing that helped me grapple with it. It all felt, absolutely. Um, it all felt like a weird opiate to try to distract ourselves from this thing. Um, and it's not even to say that like being happy is bad. It's just that the pathological happiness at a certain point you go, it's like, oh, it's because you can't grapple with this. And then this you start feeling like a freak because you're sad after a loved one dies. And that's horrible. Like there's nothing weird and wrong about that. That's your brain working the way it's supposed to. And like adding that weird shame on top of grief is just absolutely cruel. And then we witness on top of this the same thing that that I experienced, that you mentioned experience, that I guarantee um, uh, Gareth experienced when his mother-in-law passed, is the people who surround themselves with that pathological happiness in order to grapple, in order to push away this, this very harsh reality, but still a reality, wind up becoming, through no bad intention, absolutely the worst friends to have when you experience oh, yeah. those things absolutely like, yeah they can yep. be, they can be great people outside of that they can be tremendously fun they can be tremendously insightful all that kind of thing but at this moment of tremendous need they've made themselves useless like to be as harsh as possible they've rendered themselves almost worse than not being there because they make you yeah. feel crazy for feeling bad okay. and not intentionally it's not even something you can yell at them for because by that point, it's too late. They can't spontaneously become better at grappling with death nature and death consciousness in order to help you. It's like uh, a parallel and a very harsh, but a very necessary parallel is for people who've experienced some kind of physical or sexual assault, the kinds of friends who simply cannot offer them any kind of support. Right. But it's it's a thing that can't be undone and you need support in that moment. And so this person can be the best friend in the world in every other circumstance. But at this moment where you tremendously need a support system, these people are almost worse than useless. And because they could not bear grappling with the reality of these things prior to that moment. Mm -hmm. And it really sort of that kind of lights a fire under certain people. Like you can tell it definitely lit a fire for Caitlin and we wouldn't be talking about it right now if it didn't have a similar kind of thing, uh, resonance with us, but it's like, yeah, this notion that this notion that our own terror 
should be allowed to prohibit us from becoming the kind of figure that someone who experienced pain similar to ours would need in that moment. It's just absolutely insane to me. Like, it's like, you know, I experienced grief and that really sucked. And feeling alone in that was absolutely awful. And, you know, we can look around at our society that pathologizes um, death consciousness as, 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 as weirdo. And uh, I've decided to ignore all of that and learn no lessons like that. I can't <laughs> like, I, I can't process that kind of thing. I like uh, not to be super. Um, I don't know what what to call it, but I, I kind of think that a, maybe a better example of how to cope with death. We might we might look to the sort of Mexican tradition of Dia de los Muertes. I think that's an absolutely beautiful way to deal with death and grief, and that it's very life affirming and positive and loving. But it's it's very it's right out there. It's fucking skulls everywhere. Oh yeah, and picnics on your dead uh, relatives graves like if absolutely. it's if like so, not pretending someone... that it doesn't exist but it's it's absolutely beautiful and it's honoring your ancestors and it's slightly morbid but yeah that's death i mean yeah. there's there's not you can't like make it cute <laughs> can you imagine it's like in in this in our respective countries seeing someone in a uh, graveyard eating a picnic on a grave You'd call the people to call the police on them. I mean, so yeah. disrespectful. Yeah, think, yeah, yeah. In Mexico, at least one day a year, it's a it's a mm -hmm. nice normal thing. And like, uh, something Caitlin's book suggests, which um, I've I've, which can sound kind of creepy, weird, but I've heard from other people that yeah, actually, it does help. Is having the bereaved uh, deal with the body a little more, and this might sound yeah. horrifying. Uh, to uh, most listeners, but uh, apparently, um, Caitlin Dowdy's book goes into this a lot. This perception that corpses are like dangerous is really, really, really inaccurate. They're not, they're, unless they died of like plague, you're probably not going to catch anything from them. And traditionally, the bodies or the families dealt with the bodies and helped prepare them. Um, Michael Cunningham, that, that the guy who wrote The Hours, um, talked about how preparing one of his friends in the 80s one of his friend's bodies a friend of his died of aids in the hospice and he, michael and a surviving friend of his helped like wash the body to prepare it for the funeral and at first while they're doing this it was pretty uncomfortable but he said that the experience really helped him um really somehow like was very healing for him and yeah, I had an interesting experience reading this book. Smoke gets in your eyes when she's going into the the nitty gritty of cremation and the physical realities of it. On in, on one ha hand, it's it's fucking gross, um, but yeah, I found it with weirdly... the uh, liquidized liquidized fat, like yeah, glooping out everywhere. Yeah, the, that one chapter where the the very large lady's uh, fat melts and doesn't burn fast enough and just glugs on out and ruins the mortician's dress is uh pretty pretty icky but weirdly enough my father was cremated and reading this book like yeah. hearing about these physical realities i somehow found it helpful and i can't explain why i can't explain yeah why knowing that someone had to put his bones in a blender 
to get them into that like nice fine ash like why that does that make me feel better by mm. all logic it really shouldn't but it kind of well, does it, it touches on the aspect that we um we're uh likely going to pivot to anyway of like there's something about the reality of death the very physical reality that winds up demystified so one of the tremendous terrors of death is that like mysterium tremendum of it of we don't know what lingers beyond it we have uh, my my guess is we have a pretty good understanding of you just cease to exist but that's still experientially we don't know how to model that in our heads right um but and that the terror of that i don't think will ever go away that one can become a deeply paralytic terror and there isn't a great right benefit to, to fixating on that far too much um but but the physicality the physicality of death and what happens with dead bodies um winds up having this yeah it, it, it's an it's an it's an implacable kind of uh comfort i i had a similar experience my my dad was cremated and we went to the hospital before they did the um the autopsy to figure out what precisely killed him and found out that it was deep vein thrombosis if you want to look that one up uh this big old fucking clot killed him uh, uh the experience of touching my dad's dead body before it was prepped by anyone he'd been dead for a number of hours at that point not not days was it sounds mo like the most insanely traumatically goth thing I could convey to someone. And in a certain way, there was a traumatic component to it. But also it was, yeah, this like inexplicably healing act. Like right. in terms of the long tail. Like making it real to me. Like this isn't a dream, but it's also the the weird dissociative combination that inside i was grappling with and looking at the dead body of my dad and outside through the window i could see people going into a starbucks about a block away <laughs> and their their day was a regular day it was a normal day they may have been having an argument they may have been driving through their car you know mad at traffic and i'm watching them you know from a couple hundred yards away with the corpse of my father laid out his mouth was still open, which I thought was a wow. weird touch. <laughs> yeah. See, even Gareth, even Hideo Kojima himself is alarmed by this. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was a really perfect musical stab there. That was just, uh, yeah. I, 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 I was didn't like, I did not plan that. That was just a like coming through on uh, Twitter. But uh, I was like, yeah, someone the doctors decided not to close his mouth that's a that's a weird touch thanks gang oh right. i'm glad yeah yeah i'm glad that's that's how i feel that's how i'm gonna choose to interpret this but yeah this the same thing of um it was my mom wanted an autopsy and wanted us to go over the autopsy stuff as a family which to people outside of the death experience probably sounds insanely morbid but the knowing the mechanics of how my father died knowing like we did a run through with the doctor of like how does a deep deep vein thrombosis form how does it get dislodged how does it um 
that helps compartmentalize the mystery of death as well and make it no longer this like great because it's true that anyone could die at any time and it can be something that you don't expect but it's also there's a mechanic to it it's not it's not like you magically cease to exist one day that's not and we carry a weird kind of terror around death because we so deeply displace the physical from it like by being unable to grapple with the reality of death we also take away from ourselves some of the benefits of looking at that reality obviously that can be pathological for some people like the jack dorsey's of the world my my brother very briefly was obsessed with these like weird health regimens um and he became a deep germaphobe but um still is to a degree but whatever washing your hands a lot is not all that bad um <laughs> but yeah we when we detach ourselves from death as a real mechanical process that happens to real mechanical things it's not the sexy theological event it's it's a mechanical one tied up in the the meat machine of the of the body we also deprive ourselves of like well you don't die randomly it's not like something I... happens And yeah, there's a weird knowledge of like the body, the body still exists. There's still your consciousness is gone, but someone still needs to blend up your bones. And that's it. It sounds really fucked up to verbalize, <laughs> but there there is a weird comfort in that, that it's like. Yeah. It's yeah. along the same lines of like the matter of your body came from somewhere. Your your um your mother, like her body uh basically mechanically put a bunch of molecules together because it was programmed to do so under certain conditions until you had enough enzymes so that your body could do that automatically and now the matter of your body still uh is still there it still has to still have to do something with it like you aren't snatched up out of the web of reality it's not like your consciousness is gone, your body's gone, your legacy is gone, your impact on people is gone. Mm. It's like, and no, just your consciousness. And all those molecules you're made from was food your mum ate. You're, you are nachos and curry and fries. <laughs> you're, you're like a shit, basically. You're like, yeah. <laughs> a, you, food goes in, something comes out. You are, you are human feces. Shat out of a pussy. That's simply what a human is. <laughs> we can hate it, and we should hate it. That's uh, it. That's my whole point. <laughs> okay, that that seems like a, a, a good point to uh, to leave off. I think. So um, yeah, human talk shit. Shat yeah, yeah. Sorry, but before we end, can we talk a little bit about who this uh, death denial might? benefit in in sort of a, a lefty capitalist way because this is something i've been thinking about like oh, why yeah, why do we keep do that oh, doing yeah. this why do we why is it like this mm -hmm. and something i was thinking about is death denial the the our refusal to deal with our own mortality i think really really helps protect um unfairness in society like after my dad passed away i decided i'm gonna quit this shitty job that sucks because i have limited time and i don't want to spend it on these fucking asshole this fucking asshole 
you know, and and I kind of think that like maybe if we confronted our own mortality, we'd be less comfortable working 50, 60 hour weeks for a boss who's an asshole for to to make an a CEO a little bit more money, right? Like maybe we'd think, you know, I have limited time. Maybe I don't want to fucking give it all to my company. Maybe I want to hang out with my family or go play frisbee in the park with my dog or or watch anime or whatever the fuck anything anything else you know yeah yeah it's um i had a similar um so i had my big breakdown regarding like grappling with death this is before my dad died then about six months later i had a I had a suicide attempt that obviously I survived. And then literally one year to the day after my attempt, my dad died. And that was like, yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, it was like a fucking atom bomb went off in my psyche. It was uh, a tremendously, um, like it was, it was like a psychic explosion, but it winds up, it wound up being a sort of big bang kind of effect for me as well in terms of uh a a weird a weird uh peek behind the veil the fact that i'm like weird and kooky and whatever online isn't incidental that's not like i'm not unaware that i'm saying effectively unhireable things it's <laughs> you have that happen and for me my reaction was i don't want to be alive and not not do those kinds of things which sounds almost like petty or smaller than i mean but like that like it clicked very very deeply you have a tremendously limited amount of time and then on top of that if you deal with mental health stuff you become at times it feels like a ticking time bomb even to yourself and so this notion of like do i really want to sign myself up for driving an hour to sit in a cubicle to get enough money, but then looking at like trying to cut through with people, like the, the people who do that don't see their families. Like I grew up in the, the workaholic nineties. So my parents were absentee parents because they were on that, like white people got to go to work train. Um, and the tremendous regret they had when they sort of realized that, um, and obviously they, they corrected it by, by the end of things, but there was that big chunk of my early childhood where my parents were always gone because they were always working because work culture. Um, looking at people who gradually over the course of aging lose the kinds of energy to pursue things that they love and it becomes like, yeah, I gotta, it's gutters time. It's, and it's, you know, I'm too tired from work to do anything but watch netflix or, or whatever um not even necessarily to begrudge people that but just yeah i i wanted more than anything else not to do that so like the commitment to i know the kinds of aesthetic things that i want to point myself toward and when you have that mortality itch there isn't a sacrifice that's too much so long as i don't die i've not sacrificed too much oh, I won't get this kind of job. Oh, I'll live a working class existence. 
I'm a fucking commie. I don't think being a working class person is inherently undignified. I don't like, I don't feel bad that I manage a sandwich shop because I don't make fucking weapons. Like I feed people <laughs> that doesn't make me feel bad. I don't make a lot of fucking money doing it, but I feed people and it's enough to pay for bills, to pay for books, to focus on writing. I don't bring home work with me in terms of my psyche so I can be psychically present for my partner, for my pets, for my friends. I can, I can work on things like it can be this tremendously transformative act, but as you were mentioning, it's of, Im it's of imperative importance to capital to keep us in the dark about these things. Because the notion that that fundamental unit, it's not just their labor, it's our time that they buy. Wage is not a labor-based unit of payment, it's a time-based unit of payment. They own you for a certain amount of hours of the day. On top, that's exactly where their, uh, their method of labor extraction comes from. You don't owe them $15 of labor in the course of one hour. You owe them one hour. They happen to give you $15, but that's all sleight of hand. If we were actually paid the labor that we were generating for people, we wouldn't need a radical uh, economic revaluation like socialism because you would inherently be getting compensated for the labor you produced, but we're not. That's not that's not the point of it. The first unit of extraction is time. And they can't it's harder to do that to you if if you are aware that that is the first thing you are selling. And, and on it top becomes of that, creepy too. It's like a kind of oh vampirism God, yeah. when you think about that like, oh, they're taking my time. <laughs> oh, and what is it's, time but life? They are suddenly life out of you, literally. It, we have, on top of this, the uh, a societal uh, shaming of infirmity. Uh, like, ableism doesn't arise just out of the blue. There is, of course, first the psychological impact that we make monstrous infirmity of any kind because right. we can't bear to have it reflect on us, and so we become tremendously ableist and very, very shitty to people Disabilities, people with illnesses, they chronic or even temporary, um, even if they're like totally normal things. Like, I'm, uh, I'm on the autism spectrum. It doesn't ruin my life or anything. The idea that someone would forego a vaccine that could keep them from dying because what they don't want to become fixated on an author's body of work and so buy all of the buy six novels and a fit and read them over the course of three weeks i mean that's what the auti autistic experience is. <laughs> not it's not like weird it's like oh you know i really like liked that and i want to understand their body of work a bit more fully so i'm going to read the footnotes in the book unlike a normal person who does not read the footnotes like it's not and then people are like yeah i'd rather die yeah yeah <laughs> i'd rather get measles to die uh-huh yeah that's that's fair like i don't want my kid reading too many books that'll make them Mm, nope. Mm -mm. Better, better for them to die. <laughs> uh, but the the shaming of infirmity and illness also comes from that sense that you're less productive. Your hour gets less done than someone else's hour, and there's nothing more offensive to the system of capital than your body getting in the way. That's why you have to earn sick days. This notion that like being sick is not justification for resting. 
It's like, no, you haven't produced enough capital for to, to, to have the right to rest. <clears throat> Can we talk about the opposite end of that? Uh, Caitlin's book touches on it too, very briefly, about the very interesting, super creepy desire for immortality among billionaires, among tech billionaires especially. I believe Peter Thiel said that he will achieve immortality and that death is just like a mindset error or something bizarre like that. Oh, mm. I think that's yeah. so, so interesting because it must infuriate them that they've taken so much of our time, but they haven't been able to really add it on to their, the, their lifespans that much. I mean, mm. they've bought I mean, up millions of hours of our time, but they're still not going to live those millions of hours. It must be I mean, very annoying the to them. That's the predicate anxiety of any, of any structure of privilege. That's that's the thing that becomes asinine once the insight hits you. Like, we, we made privilege. We invented the notion of, of privilege and oppression. And we sometimes view it as we did it to hurt other people. And that's not quite true. You don't, because people in positions of privilege don't view themselves as being monstrously inhuman to others. And if if they aren't, it's not because... It's because they're making it invisible, and they're able to make it invisible, because that's not the impulse. The root impulse is you create a structure of power, and a lot, you know, there's a roughly equal, if not perfectly equal, distribution of, of power. And you, you arrange it so that more of that power is on one side than the other. You artificially create a deficit of power and of agency on one side of the equation than on the other so that you can place yourself on the position with more power. You don't do that to make yourself artificially weaker, but you do that to address that fundamental anxiety of, oh, fuck, I am going to die. We generate things like male privilege, like, like racialized privilege, like sexualized privilege, partly as ways to get more power. And the near singular reason why people want power want control is to control that final barrier of i don't want to die right and and i do think part of this extreme death denial this desire for immortality on behalf of the rich isn't just normal i mean to, to a certain extent probably most of us don't want to die because it sounds super scary and, and that sucks but also if you have if you're a billionaire and you really confront your own mortality you start asking questions like what's it all for why why have i been willing to destroy the world for this stuff that's i'm not going to have access to after i'm dead you know you can't take it with yeah. you like what what could like, i mean maybe yeah maybe if you if you're one of those cultures that believes that like you can take food and money to the land of the dead i guess Maybe that would make it feel okay to be a billionaire, but in our culture, we don't believe that you can take your wallet to heaven with you. So, and and these guys are generally kind of atheistic. So, if you're an atheist and you start thinking about mortality, and and you're a billionaire, you, you start thinking like, what what was the good of all this money? I fucked over my employees. I, I busted unions. I disrupted labor laws, and I'm still gonna be a dead guy eventually at at the end of it I'm, worms are bugs are going to eat me no matter what no matter what i've done bugs are still going to eat me and maybe they wouldn't be so comfortable doing all this shit like 
pursuing this relentless wealth, wealth beyond what a human being can even spend in one lifetime. Yeah, I mean, it, at least for me, that um, that tremendous like atom bomb of death consciousness that hit me like over the course of about a year and a half was one of the bigger predicates for actualizing little glimmers of leftism that had been in my life beforehand. Um, yeah. It, it wasn't that it wasn't present. It's just that it wasn't this major driving force. But it was after that that I got serious about reading like feminist theory texts about reading um, like Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks and Irigaray uh, and all these other kinds of figures, Franz Fanon, like just on and on and on because of that same, that same thing. Once you release this weird kind of hold that death slash life fixation has on you, um, and death avoidance versus positive, like that. Once that whole system starts to drop away from you, it can become this intensely transformative act where you start witnessing more clearly the suffering of others and the severity of the suffering. Because once you also accept and internalize death, the suffering of someone else who also has this finite amount of time becomes absolutely intolerable like witnessing an oppressive structure and knowing this person doesn't get a second chance one day they'll be dead and everything that's taken from them won't be given back like there's not a heaven where they get all of this store it it absolutely lights a fire under you that you're like that has to be redressed there is no other option there's no other acceptable alternative Absolutely. And death is so democratic, too. I mean, whether you're rich or poor, you're going to get eaten by bugs eventually. <laughs> no matter who you lesson. are, eventually you're going to get eaten by bugs. That's a powerful lesson that doom metal and death metal work very hard to keep us constantly aware of. And for that, they're the real <laughs> heroes. Absolutely. They're the real troops. <laughs> Woods of so, Prey, he was a troop. And that is why horror filmmakers are the most moral filmmakers, honestly. The only moral filmmakers, perhaps. Really? Yeah. But uh, yeah, that seems like a good place to play some, uh, and admittedly, not death metal, black metal, but like the only good black metal, I think. One of the very few great black metal bands that are around right now. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're tremendous. Yeah. Uh, them and Kralis and probably a few others that but um yeah they're just very very good they're the good called, boys of black metal they are the good they are the good boys of black metal um they're called yellow eyes they're from brooklyn uh, they're from it says new york new york i think they're from brooklyn um i've had this theory for a while that yellow eyes are named after a phrase from where the wild things are there's a bit in where the wild things are, where they, where they, they're like, and the wild things rasp their terrible claws and roar their terrible roars and rolled their yellow eyes. And that's the only other place I've heard the term yellow eyes in any of culture. So it's possible that yellow eyes are named after a passage from a, from a famous children's book. Maybe, Maybe. not, though. 
maybe they're maybe they're named after a side effect of jaundice. I was about to say so, they could be they could be a jaundice themed black metal band, <laughs> and then after oh. they exhausted all of the potentiality there by writing one song about jaundice, they were like, "Well, fuck, we've been gigging under this name." <laughs> Instead of death metal, it's like illness metal, hmm. sort of a yeah. gently lighter flavor of death metal. I I'd be down. Songs about having different illnesses. Diabetes metal. This song is called Measles. <laughs> That'd be tight. There should be IBS metal. Uh, just yes. out there. Absolutely. <laughs> you could call the band this, Brown Note. This oh. song is about shitting myself. Yeah. Or not. It's about either shitting too much or too little. What do we for? And... Um, <laughs> Okay, so yeah, but this is the Yellow Eyes here have got a new album out. It is called Rare Field Ceiling. Who knows uh, what that even means? Read read knows? some of the read some of the song titles. Everyone's oh. gonna get a hoop. There's Light Delusion Curtain, Nutrient yep, Painting, uh, Maritime Flare, which I guess is just like a flare that you'd have on a boat. That's normal. Uh Warmth trance reversal. It it's it's all stuff that sounds like it was translated from another language, but badly. I love extreme <laughs> metal. I love it so much. Yeah, and um, yeah, they they are as we say the one of the very few great good boys of black metal, and it's a, a genre without many good boys in it, and very few good girls. But not because girls aren't good; it's because there's very few girls left into the the metal genre. Um, so yeah, we're going to play out with one of the songs off, uh, this album. It's called Nutrient Painting. It's a little long, but it's, uh, it's a good one, I think. And, um, Raquel, where, where can, where can folks find you? See, uh, you can find me on my writing podcast called Write Good. That's R-I-T-E-G-U-D. We have a Twitter account by that name. Um, we're also on SoundCloud. We're on uh, Apple Podcasts. We're wherever you're going to find podcasts, we're on there. Um, I've also got a Twitter account. It's Benedict underscore R-S. And you can find my fiction uh, in various sci-fi fantasy horror magazines mm -hmm. out and about yeah, and my Caratest most recent is good fiction oh thank you my most recently published work is a novella called all of me which appears in the march april issue of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction nice Ooh. yeah good one. cool uh, and that's out yeah that's already out that is out a month or two ago cool okay so yeah folks at home uh, come back next week for more we're going to be doing a pretty horny episode next week next week it's kind of saucy oh. <laughs> thank god we've been very unhorny so far over the course of this podcast but next week we're, we're letting it all go it's going to be going to be nude it's going to be butts <laughs> um, we're going to uh yeah going to be talking about how to make babies um, I'm going to record it nude uh, in a po pool of warm gel. Oh, Ooh, God. Nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm going to buy one of those little, like man symbols uh, on a, in gold on a chain. And just, just going to nice. be on my really hairy chest. 
I think we're <laughs> aviators while recording. Austin Powers so style. That's how we. That's how next episode's going to do. Uh, we're going to be talking about Neon Genesis Evangelion because uh, you know we need to balance out the horny somehow. <laughs> By being, thinking about dying and experience. isolation even more than we do. Oh yeah, you think we talked about death and misery this episode? You wait till we get on to uh, a twenty-year-old anime. Yeah. Technically, yeah. this was the cheery episode. Oh yeah, we're we're get get really into it soon. So uh, yeah, get get on the Patreon for that one, and um, yeah, here's Yellow Eyes. <laughs>